Good morning, everybody. Today's office is in Tet 59. We're in the middle of the, explore, of the expansion of the line at the uh, end of the Mishnah, of the first Mishnah in the sixth parak, that when you assess the damage done by Shein Varegel, you assess it based on another field, which um, basically means two ideas. Number one is you focus on the damage to the field, not to the fruit, and you say how much was the field, the price went down as a result of the uh, eating of the fruit in the field, um, and which is much less than if you were just to focus on the fruit. And then the question is, um, how do you assess? Like, because if somebody's whole field constitutes this one plot of land where the animal ate, then obviously the damage is much higher than if a person has a thousand acres. So the Gemara says, which Rashi says means you assess it based on what that damage would have been in a field that was like 60 times as big, although there was this whole number of 60 floating around, although it got confusing because is it 60 plus this idea of 60 to us, 60 to how exactly do you do the math? Um, well, I just wanted to mention that. It's not clear from Rashi that it's your field. Um, you know, Rashi makes it actually sound like you go by some standardized model. Tosfos, uh, which I did not mention yesterday, emphasizes that the, that the, the Mishnah actually says, um, and that what actually Rashi's explanation has lost is the idea that the emphasis, Rashi Tos actually says, the Chirish of the Mishnah, or the point of the Mishnah, is the Otah You actually say, how much was the Hanizak damaged. How much was this this person's field damaged? But the question then still is: Is that well? What do you mean? So if a guy has a small field as opposed to a guy has a big field, how exactly do you figure it and assess it? So what Tosa says is: I mean, this all gets very complicated. But I'll just put it out there. Um, what Tosa says is that what you do is the following: Is you say, look, had a se'ah of let's say, let's say the animal ate wheat. Had a se'ah of wheat been eaten in a sixty se'ah field, how much? Would that, would that like acre have been depreciated? The acre which was eaten from? How much, or no, excuse me, how much of the whole field have been eaten from? They from an acre in a 60 acre field, how much would that whole field have been depreciated? So the answer is $1,000. Okay, good. So now what we're going to do is we're going to say, whatever, that's a high number. Anyway, we're going to say that we figure out how much this animal ate and we sort of, you know, like do the proportional math. Okay, so this animal only ate a half a saw, so it's uh, $500. A quarter saw, three saw, we do the proportional math. Okay, but the chiddush of still ba'osa sada is we don't sort of say if it had eaten a saw in a 60 saw, in a generic 60 saw field, had eaten a saw in a 60 saw field of this field. Imagine this field. Right. Right, I understand. So that totals primarily adds the emphasis of that it's on this field. Anyway, it's all very complicated. Let's continue on Nun Tadamad Aleph, where the Gemara says the following. Um, okay, the Gemara says like this. Um, so we had a debate of Rav Nachman and and Abaye was it Rava or Abaye? A Rava, right? We had a debate of Rav Nachman and Rava, um, where it was. Um, no, Abaye. Abaye, hold on. No, no, no. We didn't. We finished that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, no, I'm gonna Rava. So Rava said, so Rav Nachman basically ruled on a certain case with the case of an Adam Hamazik, a person who destroyed a Dekel, that the Reish Galusa said, you also do this computation of 60 times, and you look at it in the context of the larger field, and Rava disagreed, and Rava said, that's a special halacha by Shane, it's not a halacha of Adam Hamazik, and then uh, it ended with them dis- agreeing to disagree about that. Okay, so now the Gemara, but in the course, it quoted another brighter which dealt again with the whole case about an animal eating and how you figure it out, and different opinions of the Tanayim. So we pick up with um, the following. Amar um, Abaye. So it's Abaye. It's about ten lines from the top on the Tadamadalaf. Amar Abaye said Abaye. Rabbi Yosi Aglili, Rabbi Shmuel, Amar Dovrachet. Rabbi Yosi Aglili and Rabbi Shmuel said one thing. Rabbi Yosi Aglili had the Amin. Rabbi Yosi Aglili is what we just quoted in this uh, brighter that we quoted yesterday, which is uh, where is the Rabbi Yosi Aglili? Hold on. Now I gotta find it again. The bottom of the thank you. Thank you. So Yosei Aglili has a new approach, and Yosei Aglili says, "No, you actually, if it ate um, a certain an acre of uh, grapes." 
of like unripe grapes or whatever, you actually assess the value, not, not just saying like the 60 and not saying how much does the field damage, but you ask how much, you look at when the grapes are brought to market. And if when the grapes are brought to market, they're going for, a, for $100 a bushel, and it ate a bushel of unripe grapes, you pay $100. So, well, I don't know if it makes sense that you go based on the price when they'll eventually come to market. Right now, they're very unripe. But it's, it's, it's an approach that focuses on the fruit being destroyed, not on the field. And then it actually says, how do you assess the value of a bushel of unripe grapes? Nobody buys a bushel of unripe grapes. Well, you assess it based on how much it'll eventually sell for. Which is funny, because that's not really what it's worth. But that's what he says. Okay, by the way, just to com- confuse things more, Tosa says, even Rabbi Yosef says, you sort of do that math within the context of the cost of the field, but I won't go there. So the Gemara says like this, okay? So Rabbi Yossi says, you assess it based on the value of how much that will be worth later. Um, so Rabbi Yossi agreed with Rabbi Shmuel Amr They both said one thing. Rabbi Yossi agreed with Hadam, and we just said Rabbi Yossi agreed with um, Rabbi Yishmael to time. Rabbi Shmuel we taught. Meitav Sadeu, Meitav Karma Yishalem. The best of his field and the best of his vineyard he shall pay. Um, this is about the Pasuk of Shein Varagel. Meitav Sadeu shall nizak, Meitav Karma shall nizak, Tiv Rabbi Shmuel. Rabbi Shmuel says it's the best of the fields of the nizak. Rabbi Akiva Omer, Lo Bakot no, 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 no. What the Pasuk is saying is, is that when the Niza comes to collect from the Mazik, he can collect from the best field of the Mazik. Now, it's not like if you destroyed an acre of a bad field, he can collect an acre of a good field. No, if he destroyed $100, then he can collect that $100 from the best field of the Mazik. Okay, and it's certainly true by Hectish that Hectish can collect also from the best field. So, the question is, Rabbi Kiva, it's clear what it means. It means the field of the Mazik, and it's the type of property he's entitled to collect from. But what does Rabbi Ishmael mean when he says you assess the best field of the Nizak? Does it mean that if he destroys an acre of the bad of, of the bad property of the Nizak, you have to reimburse him based on an acre of the good property of the Nizak? Like that's nothing that we've ever seen so far. So we so it was discussed earlier. So let's see what the Gemara does with it here. Okay? For low tema, don't read Rabbi Ishmael. Like, for example, if it ate one patch amongst other patches, so you can't just straight say if it destroyed a bad acre, you'll pay, you can treat it as if it destroyed a good acre. But let's say there's a doubt. It ate one patch of, uh, of tomatoes, and you don't know, it was right at the boundary line between the, you know, average tomatoes and the prized tomatoes. And you don't know if the, if the, if the section it ate was from the average tomatoes are from the prized tomatoes. It was from the, from the bad or the good. In that case, the Torah is telling you, assume it was from the best. The Amar, pay the best, you know, pay as if it ate the best. From what you see now. We don't say that. So he says, means you give it as if it destroyed the best, but not when you know it destroyed, it destroyed grade C. You don't treat it as if it destroyed grade A. But if there's some doubt as to what it destroyed, you, you tip the doubt in favor of the Nizak. Okay, that's, what, that's one reading of Rabbi Shmel. No, don't say that. That's not the right reading of Rabbi Shmel. We would not say such a thing. My time, what's the reason? It's very interesting, you know, when the Gemara sort of is willing to accept like Chidushim in the Torah, you know, like, like some type of a Chiddush, but it would rather not accept the Chiddush that violates the normal principle. Like every now and then you have it. Okay? But we'd rather accept an arbitrary law or some type of a Chiddush if it didn't also violate a, like a general principle of how we do things. So we would rather not read it that way because that would violate the general principle of is it possible that here the Torah is telling you here we are going to find a doubt in favor of the Nizak? Yeah, it's possible. But we'd rather not assume that's what, that's what it's saying because that goes against our general principle. Okay? So that's not the reading of Rabbi Ishmael. So what is the reading of Rabbi Ishmael? The reading of Rabbi Ishmael is that if it destroyed something that is unripe, you look at it as how it will be when it will be in the future its best. Okay? Umayn you, what is it? That which is going to come up. So what it's telling you is like this, like what Rabbi Yosef said, that if it destroys unripe grapes, you pay as how much those grapes will be worth when it comes to market. Okay? So, well, that's what it says. Meitav Sadeh. What is the best of the field? I know, it's not what we said before, but that's what we say now. What's the best of his field? When it becomes in its best state, when it becomes ready to be harvested. Now, I don't know, to me, I am more offended by that violation of a principle than by the tipping the sun 
suffolk in favor of the nizak. Like here you're paying somebody more than the damage was. Okay, the damage was very unripe grapes, which, you know, you could, I assume, even though nobody normally buys it, you could find some way to assess some market value of it. And you're paying based on a much an inflated value of what it's going to be worth when it goes to market. And you could say, well, the problem is we have no way of putting a dollar value on an acre of unripe grapes. Nobody buys just the grapes. You either buy the land or you buy the finished grapes. Nobody buys just the grapes. Okay? And therefore, since there's no way of assigning a dollar value, the Torah tells us, use this as the way to assign a dollar value. But to me, that still seems more unfair than the Suffolk meat of Rabbi Ishmael. Yes? It's not that there's no way to value it, but that you're not doing it justice for the person who got damaged unless you're like, giving it the higher value. Okay, there, that he's grown, it's like it's like if you damage a, a, a major league baseball pitcher's hand. Right. <laughs> it's like you're not just paying. You're not just right. The insurance isn't just going to pay out. Well. Right. I mean that's a good point. Meaning even if you could save market value, let's say somebody was buying this acre of land, how much would they have bought it with the unripe grapes and without? So that's a market value. But you're saying is that's all very nice that that's some way of assigning a market value. But this farmer, his like. He was expecting to put food on the table based on what this was going to produce, and now he doesn't have a way because you just gave him some difference in the cost of the land. So, I, you know, I, I hear that. I hear that. I guess I'm still wondering that, you know, like, it's not fair to the Mazik because who knows if these grapes would have ripened and how about deducting all of the cost of all of the fertilizing and the work that would have gone into growing them. And like, so there's still, but I hear the, I hear the point. You know, it's just not clear to me why the Mazik is happier with this, like, not precise, to sort of you know payment more than it was with the other reading like when there's a level of doubt they, they need the like it already exists they're right not, they're not like right, unborn right but the question is how much are they worth in this state right why are you paying them for how much they'd be worth once they're fully developed right, right. exactly and even if nothing destroys the crop it's going to be you know how, how about figuring out how much the amount of effort and labor is going to go into it you know well we'll see about that act. so we'll see a little we'll see a little bit of that coming up. Let's take a look. Okay, so the mother says like this. Um, okay, I'm a mark. So we so we talk, going back to this bright up. Reb Shimon Yudomer, Meshim Reb Shimon. Meshim Yudomer said the name of Reb Shimon. When do you pay the difference of the cost of the field when it ate the like uh, the, uh, the, the the figs uh, when they were like hadn't even begun to like the fruit hadn't even begun to emerge and similarly the the uh, the vines before the grape had begun to emerge. That's when you pay the difference in the field. Um, uh, okay, so the Gemara says Hasmadar. So that suggests that once the grape gets to the smadar. Smadar is the like the flat, like once the fruit actually uh, actually uh, uh, emerges, even extremely unripe. That's sort of like the smadar stage. Okay, so um, actually, actually, no, I think I described it too much. I think Raji says the lulavegifanim is that the fruit. Uh, thank you. The lulavegifanim is that the fruits actually had just begun to emerge, and the smadar is that they've actually ripened a little, but they're still very much towards the unripe end of the spectrum. Okay, so hasmadar once they've begun so you pay the difference of the field what if the actual when it's the fruits have like only just emerged but once it's madar once it's ripened a little presumably presumably he would say then you pay it as if they're ready to as, as if they would be when they would be ready to be ripened the idea we just said before you look at it as when they would be ready to go to market so he said you look at the field value when the fruits haven't begun to ripen but presumably as soon as it's madar as soon as it's just begun to ripen then you look at the future value of the fruit. So the Gemara says, one minute, aim a safe, look at the end of Rav statement. Achla pagimo bosar, is it eight, pagim is a phrase by the, uh, by the, by the figs, bosar is a phrase by the grapes. So, then it says you pay as if they're ready to be harvested. Now, pagim and bosar is a stage that's one stage further than smadar. Smadar is when it just begins to ripen, bosar is, it's unripe, but it's much closer to the ripe end of the spectrum. Okay? So, 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 so the Gemara says, right, exactly. So the Gemara says, exactly. Hudarona sakila novitzam So that's when you pay it as if they're ready to be harvested. Hasmadars, presumably when it is just beginning to ripen. Roina sakamahiyafavakama You look at the difference of the value of the field. So this is, of course, the classic problem of the excluded middle, right? He spoke about two extremes and he didn't speak about 
the middle. He says, when before the fruits have ripened, then you pay the difference in the value of the field. Once the fruits are close to being ripe, then you pay the, uh, as if it was ready to be harvested. What about the stage in between those two? Okay, that's what the Gemara says. So the Gemara says, Amar Avina Kruch Vitani, wrap it all in. But Medvar Mamurim, when do you pay the difference in the value of the field? When the fruit has like just begun to emerge. But if it ate it when it was beginning to ripen, or even further when it's ripening, in that case, then you view it as if they're already ready to be harvested. So as soon as it's begun the ripening process, put that in the second category. That's as if it's ready to be harvested. So the Mar says, okay, the Mar says, if that's true, because that's what Rabbi Yeshua said. Rabbi Yeshua, if you look at the very top, it's the first word on Nun Tadam so, if you, you're putting smadar in the, for Reb Yoshua, uh, for the uh, Reb Shem Ben Yehuda, also in the category of as if it's ready to be harvested, well, that's exactly what Reb Yehuda, that's what exactly what Reb Yoshua said. You're both saying the same thing. So the Gemara says, you know, and here we introduce this point before, uh, that was mentioned before in a small way. No, no, no. The question is, do you deduct the degree to which the process of waiting for it to come to market, etc., would have, you know, would have uh, sort of depreciated, drawn on the nutrients of the ground, and somewhat, you know, the cost, somewhat, somewhat depreciated the value of the ground. So basically, it's not exactly do you deduct expenses. If you look at Rashi, Rashi, where's Rashi? Kachash uh, Gufnat, about, I don't know, about... Uh, so do you deduct how much it would have depreciated had it gone to market by the you know now these uh, vines are very are very you know you know uh, filled with uh, whatever nutrients or whatever by the time the grapes are ready to go to market the grapes draw on the nutrients of the vines and the vines are worth less so do you deduct that you know cost that it's cost going to cost me to bring them to market what it's going to cost in terms of the value of the vines. Now, again, to me, like, I don't know, like, I'm not a farmer, I'm not a vintner or whatever, but to me it would seem that a bigger thing to fa- figure out about what the difference is going to be is the cost of my labor. Maybe, I don't know, maybe grapes, when they're growing, requires very little labor to maintain. I really have no idea. You just check, you know, water them occasionally or whatever, and the biggest difference is the value to the vines. But, so, but this at least introduces, if it's not, say, all costs, at least it introduces if we're going to figure out the future value at least we could deduct from that payment, you know, the fact that you don't now have to, you know, exert a certain, you're not, you're not, the, the cost that you're going to save as a result that it didn't reach that stage, okay, so that's going to be the position. So now what we have is we have two positions of the Tanayim that once the, once the fruit has even just begun to ripen, um, you are not going to pay based on the difference of the value of the land, you're going to pay based on a imagining them as complete fruit, except the Gemara is saying one of these Tanaim is saying, okay, but at least you get to deduct what this other guy would have saved, you know, is not, expen- is not losing as a result of them having to get to that stage. Like maybe his expense is completely or whatever, the Gemara specifically focuses on the impact, uh, you know, that it would have had to the vine. Yes? So, doesn't the Mishnah of the Gemara in Gozel AC make the point that if Ganav keeps the object, he's still got to pay what the original value was at the time of the Geneva? Yeah. So isn't that, is that like, I don't so understand. So you can't compare, in other words, here there was damage done to get the deduct. It's like a depreciation amount that you have to deduct. Well, it wasn't, the damage wasn't done to the grapes, to the, to the ripe grapes. For, we're, we're favoring the Nizat by imagining these as ripe grapes. In order to restore a little amount of justice, we have to say, you know, but, but they weren't ripe grapes. And to get them to be ripe grapes, besides the passage of time, right, sure. it would also have been, uh, I would say, the labor, and would also have been the cost that it would have come in terms of the, the, the impact it would have had on the vines and on the ground and so on. So it's restoring a little bit of a justice to this way of assessing the value. Yes? I see problems with both these approaches. First of all, um, is it the value that the grapes that the great futures contract has or is it the value that no that the grape has that's why that's the, that's why the problem with it and that's why the Gemara to restore some justice to that mentions this Kachash Kufna idea and the other side change the value of the land in the land of Israel there's no such thing as a, at least when the temple's around when we're doing Yobo there's no such thing as a permanent land sale 
and the value is going to um, where you are in the Yobel cycle. Yeah, that's an interesting question. That's not mentioned here. Yeah, it's an interesting question, how you'd factor in the Yovel issue. <coughs> I mean, whether they did Yovel at all in the Bayesian period or whatever, yeah, but... Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's an interesting question which I haven't thought about. Okay, so let's take a look at the Gemara. Okay. Uh, the Gemara says, So one of these will assume, since now they look like they're the same position of Smadar and so on, we, we don't, so we'll say that there's a difference between them about whether you deduct the, sort of the, you know, the depreciation of the field, um, or whatever, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the, the weakening of the, uh, of the drawing of the nutrients, but it's not clear which one would take that position. But we'll assume one of them does, and that's the basis of debate. So the Gemara says, Abay Amar, Misaimi, Misaimi. No! It can be identified who is the one that takes that position, that you deduct the sort of future cost that would have come to the object. Where do you get this from? Okay. Now I'm going to show you that there is a t- one of these two Tanayim, we know it's concerned about the fu- deducting the future cost that would have occurred to the thing. Okay, who is that? Rav Shimon Yehudi. It's Rav Shimon Yehuda. Okay, I just got to tell you, prepare yourself. This is going to be a challenging tomorrow. The Tanya, we talk about Rav Shimon Yehuda. Omim, Shimon Rav Shimon Menasya. Rav Shimon Yehuda is the name of Rav Shimon Menasya. Onus, a rapist, um, who pays the not only the knas in the Torah but he pays damages because it's treated in Allah as an act of assault you know, di- you know injury to a person an act of assault so a rapist ain't a Michelle and a tzar, but the one thing what he's not going to pay he'll pay for the damage the nezek to the woman and which then becomes an interesting question what is that how much the woman would have gone in a, in a slave market of, as a virgin versus not a virgin okay but now we would think I would think that you know a, the big payment would be of course you know the pain and the suffering and the from and all of that. He says, no, doesn't pay tsar. Why doesn't pay tsar? Nipnei, but he doesn't pay tsar. In the difference of the Knaz of the Torah, there's the standard payments for an act of assault. And within those standard payments of an act of assault, he does not pay the tsar. Exactly. Nipnei, now why not? Well, because what's the tsar? The tsar is that it's, it, you know, there's some pain that comes when a woman loses her virginity. Well, that's going to happen anyway when she was going to have sex with her husband. So, there's no real additional pain here. Like, I don't even believe how anybody could say such a thing. But okay. Like, I mean, I really don't know what, what I, I, I really can't understand what, what, what you can imagine this to say that. Okay. I'm uh, low. So, the rabbi, the rabbi said back, Excuse me, the tsar here is not just the tsar of losing virginity. There is a big difference with somebody who is willfully participating in an act of sex and somebody who is being raped. Okay, so, all right. Obviously, that's the right answer. I have no idea how he could say something else. Um, but, um, but the, <laughs> the reason the Gemara is bringing this deeply disturbing issue up is because he's saying, look, Rabbi Shimonafia says that you don't pay the payments that are being made here to the injury done to the woman have to deduct from those payments any type of co- you know similar types of uh, costs that would have occurred in the future why should I be paying for some type of a cost that you're going to incur in the future okay so they do argue whether you also whether you, whether you consider like the you know the basic uh, profound injury that's occurred through the act of rape but focusing on the loss of virginity why should I pay for the tsar of the loss of virginity if that's a tsar that's going to be uh, right so why should I pay if I'm going to pay for the grapes fine I'll pay for the grapes but why should I be paying for a loss that was going to come as a result of that. So we're going to deduct that from my final payment. All right, that is the comparison in the Gemara. I, I think it's better to we just a, move on. What? I know, but the Gemara is saying it's not that you could have necessarily inferred it from here, but that if we have, we're saying one of these Tanayim hold it, and here we see that it's something that Rabbi Shimon Menasya factors in in a different case. Presumably, he's the Tana that holds it here. Okay, let's move on. Um, I'm Okay, the following Tanayim and Rabshim ben Yehuda said one thing. So Rabshim ben Yehuda had Amran. So Rabshim ben Yehuda, we just said, this was this case of the Smadar, and you see it as it's whatever. And, uh, but also the way we specifically have focused in now, that when there's going to be a payment, um, it's going to deduct from it few, the cost that the other side would have had to endure, you know, in the future. If you, uh, you know, that should be deducted from what you're paying him. So that's, we saw 
on Reb Shimon Menasia, um, Reb Shimon Yehuda, excuse me, Hani Tanai in the following Tanai Mai, he detained it on the Brisa. Reb Yosef Omer Nechi Chaya, Ben Azay Omer Nechi Mizonot. Deduct the cost of the midwife. Ben Azay says deduct the cost of the food. What does this mean? This is another case of paying for something that has not yet ripened. Uh, all of these very challenging comparisons about the case of uh, the, the, uh, smiting a woman and causing a miscarriage that you pay for demay vladot. Right? You pay for the cost of the child. So the question is, how do you figure the cost of the child? Like what a, what a one-day-old baby would have gone on the slave market for? What the difference in the cost of the woman with a, pre- a pregnant woman who has, you know, the, uh, you know, who, who has, who in the future, a, pre- a, woman, a woman slave in the future will, will give birth to a baby slave as opposed to a woman who's not pregnant. So there's a difference there. Like if it's the current cost of the slave market between a pregnant woman who's a slave and a non-pregnant one, then presumably that's an accurate assessment. But it sounds like what we're looking here is that these Tanayim think that you actually pay based on how much would a baby has been going for on the slave market. Okay? Or how much, if I am, you know, I somehow abstractly imagined an unborn baby. Okay? And how much would that have gone on the slave market? So it says, well, one minute. What you're not deducting is the cost of bringing such a baby to market. Uh, anyway, is, I mean, I'm saying it in harsh terms because that's the way it's what it's doing. Is, you know, it's not true. Well, fine, but you have to deduct the costs of that. The cost is how much extra food is the woman going to have to eat while during the period of her pregnancy? Awesome. How much are we going to have to pay for the hospital bills. So, you, I shouldn't have to pay for the full cost of the baby. you got to deduct the uh, cost that went into, uh, you know, to, to, to making it, you know, that will come in the process. So, so one says you deduct the costs of the, of, the, of the midwife or the hospital bills. The other says you deduct the cost of the mizonot, of the extra food that the woman needs. So, the Mars says... Um, the one who says you deduct the cost of the midwife certainly you would deduct the cost of the food but the one that says you deduct the cost of the food you're not entitled to deduct the cost of the midwife why? because the, the, the husband of the woman who was injured could say my wife is uh, very smart she's very talented she can give birth without a midwife okay like they're exactly which is an interesting play on the Chayot. Anyway, okay. So therefore, you can, I can say, look, that would not necessarily have been one of my costs. So things that definitely would have been my costs, you're entitled to, 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 to deduct. But that would not necessarily have been one of my costs. Okay. Now we're going to move on, wrap up this discussion. Rav Papa Rav Hunabrei Rav Yeshua Avidav Uvda Kavasid Rav Nachman B'Shishim Rav Papa Rav Hunabrei Rav Yeshua Pachman like Rav Nachman that even when it was an Adam Hamazik who was damaging a, uh, you know, a, a palm tree you assessed it not based on just the value of the tree but on the value of the field and you used this Shishim type of a, me- of a method. Lishachrin, another version of this is Rav Papa Rav Hunabrei Rav Yeshua Shamu Dikla Agav Katina Da'ara They assessed the value of a palm tree which get, presumably was it was destroyed by a, by a person based on like a patch of land. So maybe it's not a shishi model, which makes sense. Why should we adopt the shishi model? But it's still viewing it in the context of the devaluing of the land and not just focusing on the palm tree by itself, which is a good question. How would you assess, right, when somebody went ahead and did it? Do you, would you assess the, in terms of the land or in terms of the object? Tehilchas on the halacha is Tevasid Rafap Ravunabrid Rav Yoshua. A katina is like a little piece of land. I don't know. How do they translate katina over there? Uh, patch. Patch. There you go. A, par- a parcel. Yeah. Okay. The hills of the kavasi. Is in Katan? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The hills of the kavasi. So we rule like them that you assess the depreciation of the land when you're dealing with an Aramean, Aramean uh, palm tree. But the hills of the kavasi. But if you're dealing with a Persian palm tree, then you look at it just in terms of the palm tree. Why? Because Rashi says that's like a really hush of a tree by itself. And you know, when somebody looks at that, they don't look at it as like, oh, it's a piece of land with these trees in it. It's like, oh my God, you've got this huge towering oak. I'm not, whatever. You know, you, f- you, you focus on that as the object. So do you assess, by the way, you might remember before they complained to the Reish Kalusa that he was Don Dina de Parsa. And here we see that it was a Dekel de Parsa. 
so um, so anyway but here's a real good question like maybe there isn't a rule somebody goes ahead and destroys growing things on a plot of land do you look at it as the land was damaged and assess the difference in the land or do you focus specifically on the stuff that was growing and it might depend on how much independence that growing thing has you know from the land itself just in the way people perceive it I mean in terms of its cost in terms of its significance and so on do people perceive this as a part of the land or do they look at it sort of as its own type of a thing okay so now the Mark has a great little story with Reish Galusa that uh, tying into the Reish Galusa theme but also tying into this theme of assessing future value okay um, Eliezer's era ties in also to Inyana Dioma Eliezer's era Eliezer the younger or the small one Havesiyam Mitzani Uchmi he was with yeah that's a good point I didn't pick it up that Katina Da'ara uh, but it's a Z'ira but anyway Havesiyam Mitzani Uchmi he was wearing black shoes which apparently was not the practice Tosus is very bothered he has other grammars that sound like black shoes was the practice so Tosus says well maybe it was also wearing black shoelaces with his black shoes okay so anyway whatever it was we'll read the Gemara he was wearing black shoes Vikai Bashuka de Narda and he was there in the uh, marketplace of Narda Ashukhua de Beirish Galusa members of the house of the Reish Galua found him um, the um, you know bumped into him saw him why are you wearing shoes that are so strange and unusual why are you wearing these black shoes so I don't know so anyway but clearly it was um, we'll see it had some you know some uh, whatever symbolic significance or well right that's what we're going to see in a minute right I don't want to sort of ruin the surprise but maybe that's also what shocked them you know here you are if you're an Avel no but if you're an Avel then you should be at home here you are you're in the Shuk why are you wearing these things that symbolize mourning okay so fine so so that's what they were asking him so Amalahu he said to them become Avil now Yerushalayim because I'm in constant Avelus for the loss of Yerushalayim it's I'm not an Avel, but I'm constantly mourning over the loss of Yerushalayim. I'm Ulay, I'm Chashivali Tabule, are Yerushalayim? So you, you're so Chashiv, what? You're such a tzaddik every day you're worrying about the Avels of Yerushalayim? Like, give me a break. Like, they basically thought it was Yura, okay? So, Sava Yura Have, this person is taking on religious airs. He wants to go around and sort of, you know, pr- you know present himself like a big Chassid who's always in Avelus over Yerushalayim. So, they felt that was an inappropriate way to be acting. Who are you to go ahead and present yourself as such a tzaddik and a chassid? So, right? Uh, so they threw him into jail. So, <laughs> you got to love the social control at that time. Like, you know, you're not, like, I don't understand why this was an issue of the Beirish Galusa to have the social control over people who thought they were, who, who were trying to present themselves as big tzaddikim. I don't know, maybe because it's also seen as a little bit of a critique of the current you know, sort of, uh, you know, government, the current state as you're living in. Reish Galusa was the head of the uh, of the lay head of the you know of the Jewish sort of you know political sort of government you know within Bavel. So here you are you're worrying about Yerushalayim. If you're a real chassid and a tzaddik fine that's appropriate. But otherwise maybe you see it as a personal I don't know critique of somehow of the current government that you're living under. Uh, it's not clear to me. But whatever they weren't happy with it. They thought it, well he shouldn't be doing it. They threw him into jail. I'm curious okay? about like leather shoes or I don't know. Because I thought Valen can't wear leather uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, it's true. Avelim wouldn't be wearing shoes. It's a very good point. Why is Avelim outside? Yeah. Well, maybe if you're outside, yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you have to go outside, you can. Right, right, right. But, right, but then why did they just assume he was an Avel? Right. Maybe they knew he wasn't an Avel. I don't know. A very strange story. Anyway, now we get to the fun part. So, um, Amalu, so, um, so Amalu, he said to them, Gavarabahana. No, 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 you're not understanding. I really am an important, you know, rabbi. I'm not acting inappropriate to my status. You know, I, I you know, I, I do these righteous type, you know, these sort of uh, from types of things. This is who I am. So, Amulei, Minayadina, how do we know you're such a big rabbi? Amulei, he said, look, I'll give you like, I have this little clergy card I put in my car. No. Anyway, Amulei, he said, no. Oh, hey, I'll prove it to you. Oh, attuned by me, Naimilsa. Either you ask me a, a question, uh, like a halachic question. Oh, and I buy me Nechumilsa, or I'll ask you a halachic question. I'll show you that I, you know, I, I, I have the goods. Okay, now the funny thing is, the people in the house of Reish Galusa would be able to 
assess yeah. this person's like Torah knowledge. Anyway, fine. Okay, Amule. So they said to him, "Boy, us, you you ask us a question, which is also shocking, right? Yeah. right? Because that means that they think that they could answer a question, you know? Maybe so because he was a house to raise Galuta, that he knew that he was going to be able to test them." No, but the question is that that might no. But the question is why did they say you ask us? Like if somebody said to me, like if some nuclear physicist said to me, look, either you ask me a question about nuclear physics, physics, or I'll ask you one. I'll say, uh, let me ask you one. Yeah, right. <laughs> yes. I, 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 a good friend of mine made Aliyah years ago. Yeah. Smock, yeah. He was working living on Kibbutz Lavi. Right. And he ran the hotel lobby. Right. And he was cleaning at the bar. Right. And a Hadassah group of women came in. Right. And th- and they said. To the, the tour guide, like, you know, t- teach us some Torah. Right. So the, the tour guide couldn't say right. that. So he turned to the guy, he said, You know, even in Eric Israel, even the bartender. Right. 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 Exactly. Okay. Fine. But I still don't understand why they said he should ask them. Amrulay, they said to him, Boy, uh, you ask us. Amrulahu, he said to them, Haiman the Kats Kufra. Somebody cuts down Kufra, which is a. Uh, which is an unripe, uh, what do you call it, an, un- an unripe uh, date. So my Mishalim, what did he pay? I'm late. They said, hey, Mishalim made Kufra. You pay the value of an unripe date. So, which, and Rashi says, which is like, nobody would pay anything for it as an unripe date. Okay, so he says that to him. But it's going to be a ripe date. So, and the guy's, the owner's losing out. Like, now it's worth nothing. But he's losing out his ability, you know, eventually he'll be a, it'll be a ripe date. And, that, and he's losing that out. So, Amrulay, they said to him, fine, Mishalim, fine, pay for a ripe date. Amrulay said back to them, but it's not a ripe date now. <laughs> <laughs> so Amrulahu, so he said to them, I'm sorry, uh, Amrulay, they said to him, Amalan, ah, fine, you tell us what the answer is. So Amrulahu, he said to them, Bishishim, you look at it, you do this Shishim computation. Now, again, I don't exactly get how that answer is, whether is it ripe or not ripe. I mean, if you figure that an unripe grape based on the cost of the larger field, then it's really worth nothing, you know? So it's not exactly clear to me how the Bishishim answer, right? The Shishim answer worked better when you were talking about, like, we're talking about one great right. here, like how does the shishim address the right versus the unripe thing? So I, I really don't even understand the answer. But okay, Amrulay, Man who says like you proved to us that that's the right answer? Fine, that's an answer. But who says that that's the right the right answer? So Amrulay, he said to them, Hashmuachai, Ubeitino Kayam, got like the Chai Vakayam, Shmuel's alive and his Beitino's around, go ask him. Shadu Kamidu Shmuel, they said to Shmuel, Amrulay, he said to them, Shabir Kamalahu, he said good, but shishim, it is shishim, the Shavku, so they're fine, you know. Right, he's in jail all the time, and I don't know why being a Talmud Chacham necessarily means that you can be you're, you're a chassid to be mitabel on Yerushalayim. I don't understand the whole story, but it was fun. Okay, if you look at Rashi, Rashi's Bashishim, Rashi says three lines from the top. Ima karka da'kol bechlal shakona karka prepare town. No sin in of ktsaf b'shvach shalach rizman. Fine, that's true. If you maybe you know cut down a whole acre of unripe dates, one unripe date. I don't understand how shishim is going to make you get any any, any compensation. So okay. The moral of the story is become a Talmud Get, get, get free card. Okay, back to the Gemara. Okay, back, the Gemara now gets back to the last line of the Mishnah, which is if it actually ate ripe, totally ripe fruit ready to be harvested, right? Some degree, this was some opinions in the Brighta. She says this idea that you assess it based on the value of the land, that's only if the fruit is not ripe. If, if the fruit, fruit is not comp- completely ripe. But once the fruit is ripe and ready to be harvested, you assess it as if it just ate fruit. You don't look at it in terms of the land, even if it has not yet been harvested. Okay, so the says, my time, what's the reason? You look, you look at it in the context of how much was the field depreciated. That's only when the stuff is still seen as relating to the ground. It needs to draw on the nutrients of the ground. Since it's no longer needs to draw on the nutrients of the ground, it's ready to be harvested. You treat it as if it was already cut and if it just ate straight fruit and you pay as, because it's no longer seen in the context of the field. Fine. Amar Avuna Barchia Amar Biyamibarava Dan Rav to Rabbi Meir Rav in one case um, actually ruled a real court case like Rabbi Meir not a Rabbi Meir we've dealt with yet and he poskined in theory the Allah is like Rabbi Shimon he didn't actually have a case come in front of him but he said to his tummy you, you know we rule like Rabbi Shimon in this issue about Peiris Gemurim so it's being brought in for the second part let's see what this Rabbi Meir is Dan Rav to Rabbi Meir the time he's on Brisa Kozim Lumishon Velo Chosmolo Lusheni Velo of the Ksuvasa Diva Rabbi Meir so the halacha is if a man sells 
a field that his wife has um, to, you know, a, 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 her ksuva lean on. Okay? So my wife has her lean on a particular acre of land and um, I want to sell this land here to Michael. Now Michael does not want uh, that, that lean to still be on it because he could lose his land. So he says, fine, I'll buy that land from you if you get your wife to sign that she's mo- mo- releasing her lean. So I, I, so I, so I, so I, so I give him the, the sh- so, so I give him the star mechira, and my wife signs at the bottom that she's waiving her rights, and there he gets it. You know what the halacha is? No she hasn't waived her rights because we assume that she's doing it to make me, you know, because to make me happy, or because implicitly she's afraid to say no. You know, so in that case, her signing of it is not a real waiving of rights. Now, however, if I tried to sell it to Michael and she refused to sign it, and then I went ahead and sold it to David and she did sign it, then she really has waived her rights because if she was just doing it to make me happy, she would have signed on to the first document. Okay, so that's the halacha here. If the husband wrote. Uh, husband, but, but that's not what we assume. If the husband first wrote to the first guy and she refused to sign, co-sign on it, and then he wrote the star sale to a second guy and, he, and she did sign on that one of the ksuva. So she has lost her ksuva. Jire Rebbe Meir, or she's lost her lien on the land. And, and Rav ruled like that position of Rebbe Meir. No, even in that case, you can say, I just did it to make my husband happy. You have no claim against me. I, was, I wasn't serious. Okay, so there he ruled like Rebbe Mayor. and he ruled like our Reb Shimon. He had it now, like our mission. Reb Shimon, Omer, Achla, Peus Kamur, Mishalem, Peus Kamur, Mim Sasaim, Sasaim, Sasaim. You just took it as eating the fruit. You don't look any cheshbon in terms of the land if the fruit is already complete. Okay. What do we say? What? I assume we go like I don't know. I assume we go like that. Yeah, of course. Yeah, totally. Now. We one more Mishnah which seems almost identical of things we've taught before like it seems like we're doubling back on some Shane issue wrapping up some Shane's, some Shane issues and then we will finally turn to the next Mishnah about Aish and the rest of the parak will be about Aish so let's have this one last Mishnah about Shane somebody like uh, decides to pile up his grain in his friend's field and his friend did not give him permission and the owner of the field they eat it Pater he's obviously which is like quite obvious that he's Pater. You're only Chayev in Sadei Achia. No, no, no. The Behemto. I'm sorry, did I not say that? Behemto. Uh, okay. So the, so the animal of the, uh, of the owner ate it. Um, so he's Pater, which is quite obvious. Like, Shane, you're only Chayev in Rishud HaNizak. You're not even Chayev in Rishud HaRabim. Certainly you're not Chayev in your own field. Who would be the okay. owner ate it, actually? Then he'd be Chayev, okay. Pater. If the animal slipped and was damaged, so then it's a type of like a boar, essentially. Then the owner of the of the uh, stack is chayav of the haystack or whatever the grain stack. Um, but if he had permission to stack his grain there, then chayav. Then and the, now this is also the chiddush that that's enough to consider it a type. Well, then he does pay. The owner of the field pays if the animal eats it. Now the question is, why does the owner of the field pay, pay if the animal eats it? I gave you permission to bring it in. My animal ate it. I could say, fine, I gave you permission to bring it in, but it's still not dehanizak. It's still being eaten in my field, not in your field. Like, how's this any better than rishosarabim? You had a right to be here. You had a right to be in rishosarabim. What happens if my animal eats it in rishosarabim? Potter. So why, when my animal eats it, and you have a right to be in my rishosarabim, am I chayav? This is the whole thing we had before. Ah, okay. So, so, if you wanted to keep in the Shane model, which is what none of you said, but if you wanted to keep in the Shane model, you could say, if I give you a permission to bring this stuff in, it's like I'm temporarily lending you the land. And that little plot of land that it's on, it's not anybody can use that land. I've given you the rights to use that land. So that little plot of land that it's on in my, in my yard is actually Rishut Hanizak. That's what you could say. Okay. All right. I'm getting that. So one way you could frame it is that it's a type of a Rishut Hanizak, keeping within the Shane model. But what everybody here is saying is if I tell you sure come into my come and bring it in then, then, then I'm accepting responsibility based on what happens to it which there are, there are consequences to that let's say a wild animal came and ate it would I have to reimburse you right so the, you know it's, so that's the question is it, am I now high because of shame or am I now high because I've accepted Shemira so we discussed those issues before let's take a look at the Gemara let's say our Mishnah that says as soon as you guys give the guy 
guy permission, you become liable, goes against Rebbe, because you might remember Rebbe says you're not liable until you explicitly accept responsibility for what's going to happen. Okay, the D Rebbe, if it's Rebbe Hamar, actually Kabbalah Baal by Slishmur, that you are not responsible for the animal ate it, even if you let the guy come in, unless you say, I accept responsibility to watch the stuff that you're going to bring in. So, Amar Papa, Hacha Benatre Beidariaskina. Here we're talking about the watching that goes on in, during the threat, like in the threshing floors. Meaning basically, like it's a, you know, people are, everybody is bringing their grain into one person who's got a big threshing floor, and this is like whatever, presumably they pay him or whatever they do, this is the practice, and therefore it's understood that the implicit contract in this context is that the owner is accepting responsibility. I assume, I hope he's getting paid for his service, but he's accepting responsibility for the stuff that's being brought in. Okay, uh, where am I? Uh, once he tells the guy, bring it in and you can pile up your grain, it's like he's saying it, come in and I'll watch it. So it's a particular context where the acceptance of Shmira is implicit. Of course, if it was only that particular context, why didn't the Mishnah say it? All right, now that is the end. It's basically something we've seen before. We have wrapped up Shane Varego. Very bizarre, of course, you know, the order that these, uh, that these Mishnayas go in. Like, why didn't we have these two Mishnayas at the beginning of Akone's, like, way back when we were dealing with Shane Varego? I don't know. But now we move on to H. And the chapter divisions are weird. I, I know. And something that has been quoted a lot, now we're finally seeing it in the Mishnah. Somebody who sell, sends a torch, you know, um, in the hands of a Chayrashot of a Katan. Um, now maybe it even means just sends him on a message, but maybe it even means sends him to torch somebody's yard. Okay? Is exempt for in human court because it's only a grama, right? But he's because he obviously caused somebody else's yard to be destroyed. Now, it is an interesting question, right? Why, if you know, it's not, you know, uh, if Shalech actually means. It's somebody else's custom, not your custom, right? Not your kid? Yeah, yeah. If Shalech actually means you sent them to do it, right? Why isn't that considered, why aren't they considered like a Ruach Mitsuya? Meaning, wh- why do we say, oh, you're a Grama, you're Pater? You had a fire. You introduced a, a force in, into this fire, like a Ruach Mitsuya, that was going to bring it to somebody else's field, right? Why not? And presumably, it's because e- even though they are not considered bardas, like legally, you know, uh, of an age of majority or whatever, but they still are making their own choices. And therefore, somehow that detaches it from being your act. It makes it their act and then you can't collect from them because they're not liable for their act and you can't collect and therefore you, you wind up being a, a, this, this unfair situation so we say but it is interesting and I think in a way it's a little bit like okay from the Nezik point it's unfair but from the aspect of what it's saying about a that we don't just look at them as some like force of nature and that it's an ace with a Ruach Mitsuya we actually say no 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 if they're taking the fire that's their act now it's no longer your act right so I think that there's something like important about that so okay. Keep in mind this, uh, the ruach mitzuya would not be a kesher grama. Ruach mitzuya is the chiv of I make a fire and a ruach mitzuya spreads it, right? Or I put a I put a knife up on a roof and a wind blows it down. That's all a case of an age. So I have a fire here and I've put it in the hands of a chayr shot of a katan, let that be a case of age. No, somehow because they're doing it, even if they're not they considered like a legal responsibility, it's still their act. It's still, right, it's exactly. Okay, shows be a If you say, like, let's say, for example, let's say it wasn't a chayr shot of a katan. Let's say I took, here's a great example, I took a fire and I t- a torch and I tied it to the back of my dog and then I s- and set my dog away. Presumably I would totally be chayr, right? That's a ruach mitzriah, right? the fire is going to spread I put it on the back of my dog and he's going to go and he's going to carry it in other places so it's impor- very important that this once it's in the hand of a cherish of the cotton that becomes their fire and not my fire oh. what? okay shalach and if I sent it through though a person who is an adult and of right mind and of legal responsibility not only am I potter he's chayev and the fact that I told him to do it does not get him off the hook like I cannot say I was following orders right it's like uh, it's so even though I sent him he's chayev now so I bring a fire and then Michael comes and it's whatever it's a torch but it's whatever it is Michael comes and he dumps on all the wood 
and makes it into a big fire. And then it spreads. So, Michael's so Chayef. You're Chayef for anything? What? Well, presumably, no. Now, let's say it's the order was reversed. Michael put like a nice little wood pile, and I came and I torched, and I, and I put the fire to the wood pile. Then, I'm Chayef. I'm Chayef. Obviously, I made the fire. Now, the interesting Chiddush here is, is that we don't say in the first case, even though Michael made it a much bigger fire, do we assume that without Michael's wood, it wouldn't have spread at all, right? Or do we say, I don't know, let's say it was a medium-sized fire, and we could actually imagine that it would have spread to a certain degree, but because of Michael's wood, it would have spread more. Is it like we both dug the well? Like, I think an interesting analogy would be, remember the well that I dug nine, and then somebody dug ten, right? So maybe there's like an analogy to be made here. Like, at what stage do we say there was a hazard being created, but what Michael did was so qualitatively different that it completely means that I'm out of the picture, okay? Or do we have to say this is only when what I did was no hazard at all? The mission does not spell out those important details. Right, although I think this is more similar to the well 9 and the well 10. We're both creating a fire. I did the first part, but the second thing was, you know, made it of a different degree, okay? Um, now, um, maybe it's Orchai. Barachir Veliba. Now, let's say somebody, we had a fire with wood, and somebody came and he blew on it and made it a big one. Hamalabachayev. The blower is Chayev. Which, of course, raises the question. Are we saying only if it couldn't have spread without that? Right? What is it always, even if it totally could have spread without that, just the last guy accepts all the responsibility? Like, the critical points are missing from the Mishnah. Okay? And the most challenging is this last thing. If the wind blows it, they're all putter. So does that mean, now, does that, so that's the whole case of Aish. So Tosa says, are we talking about a Ruach Mitsuya? If we're talking about a Ruach Mitsuya, then why are you putter? So Tosa has two possibilities. One possibility is we are talking about a Ruach Mitsuya. You know why you're putter, though? Because before the wind came along, it's one thing that you have a fire and the wind, wind spreads it. Okay? Here, you did not yet have a fire. You had something that could become a fire. So the wind made it, this is actually what the Mishnah sounds like. The wind made it into the hazard, made it into the fire, so it's the wind's fire, it's not your fire. If it's your fire and the wind spread it, then you're Chayev. But if it's far get there then? No, no, no. It was a tiny little thing that would have died out by itself. Okay? And even though the wind was a Ruach Mitsuya, I didn't make an Aish. I didn't, an Aish is defined as a type of a fire that can spread. And this is not a fire that can spread. This right now, if there was no wind, would go out. So even though it was to be anticipated that the wind would come and it was a Ruach Mitsuya, nevertheless, I'm Potter, it's not my fire. Now, Tosos, that seems, you know, unjust, but we've had unjust things before because they don't fit into formal categories. But based on, anyway, other evidence from earlier discussions, Tosos rejects that. And Tosos says, even if you didn't make a big fire, even if you made a fire that would go out, if it was a Ruach Mitsuya and it made it into a big fire, you're Chayev. That's still H. And therefore, he says, the case in the Mishnah is that the wind is a Ruach She'en. Is the type of wind that could not have been anticipated made it a big fire, then we're exempt. But if it could have been anticipated, we're Chayev. Okay, let's read, just read the, finish the daf. Uh, when are, is it that when you give it to a Cheyushet of a Katan, you're exempt, is if you gave them an ember and they blew it into a flame. Okay, that they really take ownership over the fire. But if you gave a live flame, you're Chayev when you give it to a Cheyushet of a Katan. My time, a Masul Because your actions, ultimately you knew, they were going to, you gave them a live flame and they spread it, so it would, it would be sort of like a Ruach Mitsuya. What I was sort of saying against in the Mishnah, they were saying, no, it would be a Ruach Mitsuya. If they made it into a fire, then it becomes theirs. But if it was already a fire, similar to what we were just discussing a minute ago, right, then, even though they're you're Chayev. Even if you gave them a live flame, you're exempt. My time, it was the holding of the Chayev that caused it, which means, ultimately, even though you could have anticipated it, and you could see a Chayev as a type of a Ruach Mitsuya, Ultimately, what he's saying is the Cheresh was the one who spread it and not you. So it, 
even if it started as a flame, the act gets associated with the cheresh. Right? Well, the Gemara elsewhere ties this in. I'm not, you don't have to see it that way. Right? You could see it, I, I'm going to say, you could see it as this question about how do we view a cheresh, like as a Ruach Mitsuya, and how much do we view like the act of a cheresh as being significant. But Hillel correctly reminds us that the Gemara earlier connected this to the debate of Eishav Mishum Chitzav and Eishav Mishum Amono. And the more that Eishav is Mishum Amono, the less you need a direct connection to you, so the more you could say you're Chayev through a Cheresh Shot of a Katan. The more Eishav is Mishum Chitzav, it's your act, the more intervening another person in it makes it less your act. So that also is a part of a question of how you conceptualize the obligation of H. Okay, so according to Rabbi Yochan, we'll just end with this line, the lo you're only chayv unless you give him like flax and lighter fluid and the flame, like, you know, it's a conflagration ready to burst. In that case, that's definitely your act. And Hill is correct to, again, emphasize that because the phrase of Masa Didei is evocative of that issue of Eishav, you know, Eishav Mishum, Mishum Chitzav. That when it's like the Cheresh is really doing nothing, like it just required a spark to get it to spread, then it doesn't become the Cheresh's act, then it really is your act and then your Chayev. So it's possible this is all just about how you see when a Cheresh sort of takes ownership of the act, which is an interesting question about what status did the rabbis give a Cheresh to a Katan, even though they're not Bar Chiyuva, or it could be what you see the Chiyuva of Eish to be about. And the more that it's only about Kitzav, you know, then the more you would need a direct connection to the person himself. Okay? That's it for